So when you think of an insurance agent, you probably, it doesn't conjure up, you know, an exciting kind of guy or, or woman and, but you need them and you recognize the, the versatility of understanding the needs to offset the risk uh, for your personal and your business. And so I happen to be looking at LinkedIn and, and I run into Zach Finn and I've, I've met him a handful of times over at Butler University and and again, I, I, I started following him and all of a sudden I start reading about him talking about business value and losses to the to a business owner. And it wasn't, you know, just personal losses. It was how does this affect goodwill? And I had never heard of a insurance agent talk about that. So I reached out to him to get a clearer understanding of why he's different and how he is serving business owners. So I hope you enjoy my conversation with Zach Finn. Please welcome. Please welcome. Welcome. This is another episode of the Defenders of Business Value podcast. A podcast where we talk about what makes a business valuable. Learn the tips and tactics to increase your company's value that only veteran dealmakers know. And now, here's your host, Ed Misogland. I'm your host, Ed Misogland. I teach business owners how to build value and identify and remove risks in their business so that one day they can sell their business at maximum value when they want, how they want, and to whom they want. On today's show, I'm, I'm really stoked. Um, I have Zach Finn. He's a clinical professor and, and director of the Davy Risk Management and Insurance Program over at Butler. So, Zach, welcome. Thank you. Happy to be here. Well, I was, before we, in our pregame chat, I was, I was telling you a little bit about, you know, how, how you got here. And I had told my assistant that I was interviewing an insurance professional, and she's like, well, what are you doing that for? And I said, you know what? I don't think you know. This is a different. This is a different guy. So, if you don't mind, can you uh, kind of give a little bit about your background and how you got to to Butler and and the? I mean, it, you're doing different things. So, can you talk a little bit about what's going on at Butler and your practice? Yeah. Well, I mean, uh, you know, when it comes to insurance, I guess you could say the force runs strong in my family. I mean, my grandfather even sold you know, the old debit life insurance back in the day when he was working at the Waynesworth bus factory in Richmond, Indiana. Uh, my dad was a life and long-term care agent. In fact, he's probably doing voluntary benefit enrollment right now as we speak. Um, and my mom, uh, they're separated, but she's a nurse case manager and does workers' comp case management. So um, I picked my career actually not because of their careers, but in spite of them. I actually don't enjoy either of the things my parents do um, professionally. I respect the work that they do, but it's not work that I would have enjoyed doing. You know, for me, I actually, I wanted to be a, a finance major. I, I went to Indiana State as a finance major. And while I was there, uh, my good friend, Dan Mate, who's now a reinsurance broker, talked to me about the insurance and risk management program. He talked about the fact that there were only 15 universities that offered this degree, but yet it was for a multi-trillion dollar industry and how there was all these job opportunities. And I remember thinking, I'm a B student. That sounds great. <laughs> I don't want to compete against, you know, the A students at Harvard for finance and never have a chance when there is no risk management degree at Harvard. There is no Harvard people to worry about, or even at the time, Butler people to worry about. And so once I picked a risk management insurance degree, I really enjoyed the material because it was about problem solving. It was about, you know, putting people's lives back together after bad things happening. It was, it seemed like a business with a little bit more of a noble bent to it. And when you have an insurance degree, you start to get the question of, 
you know, do you want to be an agent, a claims adjuster, an underwriter? And for me, it was, well, geez, actually, I still want to work in corporate finance. I want to be in risk management. And so I found my way to Jeff Hoke, who's frankly one of the most brilliant risk manager alive is Jeff Hoke. He's the risk manager of, of Honda North America, absolutely brilliant risk mind. And Jeff was the risk manager of the National Cash Register Company back in the 90s. Really? And so I interned <laughs> with Jeff in 1999 at the National Cash Register Company with Y2K going on. And so, you know, when you think about some of the things I'm having and thinking about the Pandemic Risk Insurance Act and facing an unforeseen situation and the coverage that we've never has covered this before and might never cover it again, well, I actually lived that already with Y2K. In fact, the, the ironic thing is all the bad stuff we thought was going to happen on Y2K is actually happening now. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and then was more of a, of, a, of a false alarm. But, you know, one of the interesting things, and I'll pause here in a minute so you can ask questions, but one of the interesting <laughs> things okay. about working in risk management is, you become a utility player of every position, right? I don't turn in my renewal and then let my underwriter give me my lost pick. I tell them my lost pick and they have to tell me why I'm wrong. Or if I have a claim that's being adjusted, I don't wait for them to adjust the claim. I'm adjusting the claim. And that's true for policy archaeology to actuary to reinsurance to every single position on the team. And so when you serve in risk management, you learn where all the pieces in the insurance industry are. And particularly when you work for large companies where, you know, one of the things that the insurance industry doesn't understand is, you know, when you're a hammer, everything looks like a nail. But when you start to get to the size of Procter & Gamble or Eli Lilly or the NCAA, you actually have to make your own insurance, right? Some things just aren't insurable, right? If you've got a billion-dollar plan in New Orleans with a $600 million flood exposure, there might only be $50 million worth of flood insurance on the planet. And so you have to start to think more creatively than what the insurance industry is used to. You know, they like to hand off the solutions and then just go count the money. The risk managers actually have to make sure they get implemented. And, and yeah, so the other yeah. side of the coin that the industry often misses is how do you take the risk management insurance recommendations and translate it into business professionals who've never heard anything about insurance, right? Because think about it, insurance, not only is it not a degree that's offered in most universities like it should be, but it's also not a class that's required of most business professionals. And so we're living the consequences of all that right now. Well, the avatar of an insurance professional is not what what it used to be. I mean, you know, it was the guy that, that knocked on your door and I'm, you know, I'm selling you some sort of policy that you, that, you know, you cringe at the thought of getting. Now it's an entirely different story where you have empirical data and you're able to communicate it, you know? Well, not even only that, but it's, that's the personal lines, right? That's the face of the whole industry is the personal lines, but you know, 46 and a half percent of all premiums are commercial lines. Uh, premiums, sure. Yeah. Right. So for me, I mean, with much love and respect to my personal lines friends, I actually enjoy all the personal lines products. I'm a life insurance geek, and you know, I'm the guy who bought his kids' whole life insurance for their college graduation, you know, prepaid up and ready to go. So, you know, don't get me wrong. I love my personal lines friends. But, you know, for me, I mean, what is commercial lines? That's uh, concussion insurance. That's how they're going to be in NFL when volunteer coaches don't want to volunteer because they could get sued for not following concussion protocols. That's how do you insure a pizza through a drone or – um, you know, satellite insurance and all these things that people just never think of. Sure. You know, that's the problem with insurance. You just hit right on the head. It's a product that somebody forces me to buy against my will. <laughs> I get to pay a bunch of money either because the state or my wife or somebody said so. And then I only get any value if something terrible happens. And so, you know, who would want to be a part of that transaction? And then, and then if you never have a claim, you don't know if insurance is any good. So I always tell this story like bad finance, bad accounting, bad marketing, you know, immediately you got an immediate, you know, oh my God, my ROI sucks or I'm Peloton. Look what's happening to me. We never learned what bad risk management was like. I mean, big guy, you know, I hate to use this example, but I love Bill Cosby's comedy and I loved a lot of things that he did sure. for African Americans in entertainment. And then you find out he might have been America's most prolific rapist. And so, you know, that's what risk is. It's great until the day you wake up and you're like, oh my God, Tom Hanks is sick and we're all grounded at home. And, 
you know, we're, we're handing out stimulus in this really weird way that, you know, not getting into the right places in the economy. And it's all a function of right. there's no risk management right now of what's happening. That is an interesting, so because we're, we're writing the, the playbook as we go, right? Well, the people in charge are, you know, for someone like me, I mean, I liken it this way, you know, I, I'm a trained degree risk manager and there's people that have plenty more experience than me and plenty more education than me, but there's not as many people that have both. And so, and because of the kind of career I had working in large corporations, looking at supply chain and business continuity and understanding, I mean, I did product recall work with Lloyd's. Not only do I work with supply chains going out, but I've done reverse logistics. And so I just see risk in a completely different way than most people do. And there's a whole generation of people that are coming up that can do this. I mean, you have a situation where the speaker of the house is on national television you didn't know pandemics weren't included in business interruption policies. And I've got sophomores at Bowl University who we just literally covered that before spring break. Really? And so that's an educational risk that exists in the system. It's not like this knowledge is brand new or has not been known. It's just the whole world's never been on fire before to where we've, we've awakened this, this, you know, brigade of risk managers. We've had plenty of financial collapses. We've had plenty of, you know, marketing issues and things where we've seen these people come out and of the woodworks, but we've never had a chance to look at, a properly trained risk manager doing what they do and saying, wow, that makes sense. You know, so for someone like me, you know, I just tell my wife, I think this must've been what like the first physicians felt like oh. I mean, everybody <laughs> leeches and bloodletting. And you're like, listen, man, social distancing is great, but you know, economic damage has mortality too. And people are like, you're going to kill people, right? They're, they're, they're no. scared of it. It's like, sure. no, I mean, this is just the way you're supposed to deal with risk management, but most people haven't figured that out. So that'll be one of the byproducts of this is hopefully we'll learn that you can't have a bit, you know, think if risk manager was taught to every business professional in America right now, you wouldn't be having this situation, right? You'd have Congress handling this like a business interruption claim, not sending stimulus to my dad on social security. who's not out any income, not sending stimulus to the employees of the JM Smucker company who are going to make more money in peanut butter and jelly bonuses than they've ever seen in their lives. God love them, but they don't need that stimulus. My friend whose wife sure. and him just got laid off need the stimulus. Yeah, we had um, we had the SBA folks on and and a couple weeks back and and the feedback is you know the, like you said I mean it's getting there's a lot of money going to where out not into the hands of the people that need it and that's a that's a that's a problematic thing but it's but but that's always been a problem right well but I mean you know I I, I notified Governor Holcomb of this at the beginning of March but you know I fully believe that we could have liberalized the Terrorism Risk Insurance Act to include pandemics. I believe we could have backdated that coverage to include coronavirus. I believe we could have retroactively offered it to anybody who declined it before for perhaps higher premium. And I think we could have turned on all business interruption insurance for every business in America. I think of what that business interruption insurance and what it does. It pays businesses or gives them certainty during a disaster and it includes their payroll. And so we would never even have to lose any of these jobs, not a one of them. All the insurance industry had to do was agreed to, to pay claims through Terrorism Pandemic Risk Insurance Act, revised amended Terrorism Pandemic Risk Insurance Act, and then work with the government to be backstopped, right? I mean, we're bailing out industry after industry. The banks are taking 5% of the pay, Paycheck Protection Program, like a bunch of crooks, and then, and then getting the fees from the biggest clients first and not being American at all. And, and Whereas the insurance industry could have said, hey, you know what, we'll pay all these claims through uh, TRIA will restore certainty to business, restore certainty to payroll, restore certainty to paychecks, and you can take all the money that you're sending to Social Security people that aren't even out of paycheck, and you can take all the money that's going to essential businesses that aren't out of paycheck, and you can take all the money that's going to the banks, and you can actually just backstop the insurance industry and just do one bailout for people's actual losses. I mean, imagine that. Yeah. What would prevent that sanity from getting enacted? Well, there's, there's two parts of it. 
One is, it, well, I guess there's maybe three. One is the lack of insurance knowledge, right? So, you know, if you don't know anything about insurance or risk management, if you're dealing with a speaker of the house who just learned that pandemics aren't covered in business interruption, the amount of educational gap that I need to get, you know, him or her over is frankly too high. And the other part of it is the politics and the muscle memory of bailouts. I mean, this is, you know, again, if you're a hammer, everything looks like a nail. So we've done that. And then I'll tell you the other part of it. I've yet to speak to elected, I'm 42 years old and I've never spoken to an elected member of Congress in my entire life. I got, I got the Terrorism Pandemic Risk Insurance Act through intermediaries to the White House, to McConnell, to members of Congress. I've, I've finally been able to speak to, you know, a general counsel member of the Small Business Committee who was very helpful and the, and the chief of staff, the congressman, Ryan, who was very helpful. But to this day, four insurance degrees, 20 years of business disruption, pandemic preparedness experience. I'm writing stuff that I know they're reading. It's in the Washington Times and the Washington Post. And I've left messages for my congressmen and senators and I could even get them to pick up the phone and somebody to go to hell. It's amazing. It's, it's absolutely amazing to me that this is how government, in fact, works. I can't even believe it. So how do you fix it? You throw all these people out. I don't know. I mean, you, you, you know, to me, it's one of the, I mean, I literally had people tell me like, you know, yes, we think the economic damage is going to be as bad as you say, the mortality risk is going to be as bad as you say, doing this with the Terrorism Risk Insurance Act would actually fix it, but Republicans will never support it because, you know, Maxine Waters stands on which is ironic because I am a Republican, by the way, a moderate one, but nevertheless. Sure. And so it's, it's just crazy because, you know, I, I, I helped draft the Pandemic Risk Insurance Act, which Democrats like, and I have views around, regarding shutdown and looking at the total cost of risks that are more akin to maybe how Republicans are feeling. And you know, nobody wants to listen to me because I'm not completely in their camp or the other, or, uh-huh. or maybe they're just too busy talking to the you know special interests. I've had a lot of weird calls. I've had folks from Washington that I think are at, K Street or lobbying firms, and I think that they're doing the bidding of Congress. So I think there's people that are being sent out on their behalf to talk to me, and I'm talking to just anybody and everybody about this stuff. Yeah, in the hopes that they'll get the message. But to me, it's just one of those things. You just pick up the damn phone, you talk for ten minutes, you keep sending me politicians, we keep talking until we get to something that makes sense. Sure. But get the snowball effect, sure. Yeah. Well, but like, you know, if I had suspenders on, I'd be snapping them right now. I'm just a simple country insurance professor there, Ed. <laughs> no. Where I live in the real world next to a cornfield, people just do the right thing because it's the right thing to do. But, you know, what are you going to do? Well, yeah. <laughs> so the the funny thing is that, you know, as I was saying, are you the avatar of the future for for the insurance professionals? Yeah, well, yeah, I, I, we were, I was actually already on this path before the pandemic. I, I've been working with some actually some big names in the industry that we were actually going to form a venture capital fund because one of the things that I've identified in my adventures, you know, we set up the first student-run insurance company at Butler. In fact, one of the reasons we did that was just to show the industry that we could. Like, look, you don't think these students can do, you know, one of the problems I have with insurance degrees is a lot of people want to give me work that was too basic, right? I got students oh, sure. that, you know, they want them to do process certificates of insurance. They've done a captive feasibility study. And so the only way to get the industry to understand, like, no, this is what these kids can do, is we actually set up a student-run insurance company. We had the Minister of Finance of Bermuda tell us our students' work was, like, up there, same as, as good as or better, some of the professional plans that they had seen. And, and that was about giving our students a real-life experience, but it was also about showing the industry the wave of the future because what's going to happen with insure tech is it's just going to become risk tech. Right? What do you, if, you, if you have technology that could change risk behavior, you really even need an intermediary like an insurance company to do that. I mean, most insurance is bought because people don't understand the risk well enough to feel comfortable retaining it. And so a big part of my job as a risk manager Smucker was actually finding all the ways not to buy insurance and look at more unique and alternative risk financing structures. And so, you know, if I were a risk manager today looking at pandemic risk, I know exactly how I would handle it. I would, I would set up what I call, I think I've invented this, but a buyer-controlled insurance program. 
I take an owner controlled insurance program for the construction industry where they use that to keep all the subcontractors in line. And, you know, we're going to get sued anyway. We don't trust you or your insurance. So quote us a job with it. Now quote us a job without it and now buy it from us. And by the way, we'll get it for you cheaper because we're bigger. You can do the same thing with your supply chain. So think about it. If you're running a big supply chain and you don't want to vertically integrate that sucker, but at the same time, you don't want to have no visibility to it. And people don't understand that with business interruption, right? You take out one plant. There's like three or four cannon jar plants in the whole country. I mean, you start taking out one or two plants, you're taking out a lot of things that people don't understand. So you can't have a lack of visibility to your supply chain. So what you do is you sell your, you sell your suppliers product liability and recall insurance. You sell them all the stuff you're going to get the bill for anyway, right? You're going to pay the product liability or recall claims. So you say, quote me the strawberries or the dog food or whatever it is with your insurance. Now quote it without, and you're going to buy it from me. It's the same thing McDonald's does with their franchisees, by the way. McDonald's franchisees don't pay insurance for living. Until they get it from McDonald's. And so technology will now enable other companies to do what McDonald's has been doing for decades. And, and when you get third-party risk that you're selling to your supply chain, guess what you can do? You can sell yourself a billion-dollar power of pandemic insurance at a 21% tax deduction. And then you can start to take that pandemic tower and you can lay it off on reinsurance or you can you know, go to Renaissance Re and develop some insurance-linked securities. Or if the Pandemic Risk Insurance Act passes, you can then link that up with the government. So this is how a risk manager like me is going to think. In fact, and that's the insurance industry's risk. If they don't cover pandemics and business interruption for coronavirus, there'll be no market for business interruption. Sure. Who in their right mind is going to buy business interruption insurance if it doesn't include the one risk that ever shut you down? What will happen is, is, is they'll create that, they'll create a new form of business interruption in captives and trade associations, captives and risk retention groups. I mean, the industry is going to cut off its own nose to fight its, to fight its face on this. Yeah. And the funny thing, one of the things that, um, and, and just move into business valuation for a second. So business valuation is, com- it's comprised of earnings, risk and expectation two of the right. three that's in your bailiwick and right. and that's what prompted me was i saw that you had written an article about about goodwill and mm-hmm. and how uh this company's goodwill evaporated and in this case it was a contamination matter but can you speak to to how insurance plays in impairing or amplifying business value yeah so i mean you know, I, and one of the things I actually love to do in my career is work on mergers and acquisitions. Okay. I must have done 30 or 40 due diligences and closed on maybe a dozen or so different acquisitions. And, and you know, so I'm very familiar with the representations and warranty side of this and evaluation. And, and you would hear stories. If you talk to, like, the cyber folks in the FBI, they would tell you that one of the reasons, we, like, they had a cyber claim where I guess this company had a Chinese national that came in, stole all their trade secrets to China, and then and then – they didn't want to file anything with the FBI because they're in the middle of selling this stuff. But think about that. I mean, that's a very bad faith acquisition. But, sure. you know, sure. but that happened, right? And so they're not reporting that because they, they report that they were hacked and there's no value to the intellectual property. In the, and so that's a total violation of representations and warranties. But those are the kind of examples. I mean, risks are things that, you know, hide in the scenes. It's kind of that example I used before about, you know, Bill Cosby or Miramax or Harvey Weinstein or any of the thing, you know, Bernie Madoff, any of the things that we thought used to be good. And then you find out that there was something wrong in, in their DNA or in the risk. And, and it just came out of the woodwork all at once. And, and, and that's basically what we're finding out now. I mean, it, society was always this way, but we had the benefit of, you know, Walter Cronkite only had 30 minutes to bang out the news. There's only so much bad news you could hear in a day. <laughs> Um, you know what I mean? Now we got 24, seven, 365 to fill. And anytime anybody does anything stupid, we've already heard about it, you know, eight ways to Sunday. So the, the risk velocity is much faster now. And so the awareness of, oh my gosh, risk is really important. 
risk management is really important. And we can now see examples, you know, in the past, if you were messing up and, and you got lucky, you'd never know. Now you can mess up, not know, and then see your neighbor getting smacked and go, oh, wow, that, ha- that could happen to me now. Sure. Well, when, but when you quantify risk for small business, you know, and, and this is one of the biggest challenges that we have is that, and it's kind of like we were talking about the stimulus. I mean, some of the larger companies that had greater ex- access to, to advisors that could push this thing, push the application process through, you know, it, it benefited them. But the smaller, the smaller businesses, you know, they, they don't have that, that benefit. So but where I'm heading with this is, you know, when you start looking at risk, and you know, small. I understand that you know size size matters as far as business risk goes. But as as a risk manager, how do you how do you see businesses, and where do you see the the challenge that they have with risk? I have a great I have a great story uh, for this. Actually, one of the great things, and I don't know if you remember this or not, but one of the great things about working at the Janus Walker Company when I worked there is you would actually get to have you know lunch with the executive team, including Tim and Richard Walker, and those were two they're really nice great guys. And I used to say that they could run that company if their last name was Johnson. And and Richard Smucker in particular, um, very interesting guy. He was vice chairman of the Cleveland Federal Reserve during the Great Recession and just a great sense of humor. So I was there first week on the job. He asked me, he said, hey, you know, Zach, what's my number one risk? And I could tell just talking to him, he had a good sense of humor. I wouldn't have done this with his brother probably. But, <laughs> but for him, I was like, oh, no. And he's like, what do you mean you don't know? He's like, we just hired you, we're paying you all this money, what's my number one risk? And I'm like, well, I don't know, Richard. I'm like, but you didn't tell me what your most important thing was. I'm like, which one of your 24 production facilities, six distribution centers, three corporate headquarters, 5,500 employees, five and a half billion dollars of revenue, or whatever cool stuff you have at home that I don't know about is most important to you? Is it one of the, is it one of the jelly plants which bears your name? I said, I don't think it is because those plants are at 100% capacity, and so you could probably afford to lose one and be okay. He's like, that's right. I'm like, I bet the most important thing to you is probably your JIP plant right now because right now it's the great recession and peanut butter is the cheapest protein in the store. Peter pans out for the count on a recall. So they're 12% of market shares up for grab and you're running this plant at 140% of the capacity that Procter ran it at. So every molecule of peanut butter you make, you can sell and it's going to cost you this many thousands of dollars for every hour you're down and you can't afford to be down. And it doesn't matter whether it's an earthquake a hurricane, a, a tornado, plant of the apes, elephant stampede. Doesn't, doesn't matter. It honestly doesn't matter. Does it really matter? Does it really matter what shuts that plant down? Is it what, What's really important is what's an M24 production facility is the most important. Why is it the most important? And then what can you start to do about it? So then you start to look at things like, okay, you know, when you roast peanuts on an industrial scale, and I'm not saying anything that's out of school here, because if you search Lexington and peanut roaster, you'll find a few fires every now and again. It's just something that happens. Sure. Right? You, you get meals and skins in the roaster, and you're shooting hot air on it, and then you pop a roaster. And so you look at, okay, you put explosion panels on that so that the energy of the explosion goes up instead of out to keep your employees safe. And then it becomes a matter of getting replacement uh, panels on your roasters and your oven running. And so then you look at, well, geez, these are six weeks to order and they're flat. Why not stick them under my desk? It would be oven running in a day. And remember, it's however many thousand dollars an hour per hour. And so you start to say to yourself, it's, it's really about losing this plant. It's really about losing this roaster. And getting replacement panels to that roaster means that we can get up and running in 48 hours versus six weeks. I have yet to even say why they're down. Think about that. We just addressed a major issue for that plant, and they can be for any plant. And we haven't even talked about whether it was cyber or elephants or whatever it was. And that's that's the problem with risk management right now is everybody gets it backwards. I do. I, I even on you know I sit on the risk management committee for a couple boards for the insurance industry, and even still, insurance people everything's a, everything's a hammer, everything's a nail. 
So you want to talk about risk management, they want to sit in a room and just start throwing risk at the wall. It's got to be cyber. It's got to be pandemic. It's got to be this. It's got to be that. And it is. It probably is cyber. It probably is pandemics. It's probably workplace violence or all the things that you're saying. But the real issue is where, right? What's the value? You have to understand, like, not every risk punches the same. Some risks will punch with financial severity. Other risks punch with reputational severity. Other risks punch with life safety severity. Some risks punch everything all the time, all at once. And, and they're not all the same. It's like the coronavirus, right? Right now, we're trying to mitigate fatalities from the coronavirus that are growing at a rate of two and three times R not, right, propagation. Well, if you imagine that every, every person laid off has a fractional amount of mortality risk associated with it, suicide, substance abuse, domestic violence, we're creating job loss at a rate of 40 to 50 times the rate we're slowing the virus. And so, you know, play this game with your kids. Hey, do you want a million dollars or do you want a penny doubled every day for 30 days? Because right now you could view coronavirus as a million dollar risk and you could use all the mortality from job loss as pennies, double those pennies for 30 days and you've got a bigger problem on your hands. And so that's why I think we're probably one or two job reports away from discovering that we've created a much bigger problem than we thought. And, and that's the problem with all this is, is you have to start to look at risk the way I'm looking at it and get away from the causes. I mean, that's why we keep getting in these jams. Oh, we're, have, we're all shut down and it feels like 9-11, but we can't use TRIA because it doesn't say pandemic in it. Okay, well, so then we'll create a pandemic risk insurance act, and then we'll be shut down next time because we've been cyber hacked. And then we'll all sit around shut down, and then we'll create a cyber risk act. And it's, why do we have to do that? Why can't we just have one backstop for any day it feels like 9-11 and we're shut down? Who cares why? Right? Does it really matter? We really need to sit here not paying people because it's, it's pandemic instead of terrorism? Why can't we just say we've got a backstop with two nightmares in it worth of money covering four separate nightmares? And let's just hope we don't have more than two at any given time. I mean, that's that's how you do it. You start to portfolio these risks. You look at, you know, right now we don't buy terrorism coverage in Indiana. There's a terrorism risk here. And so if you create a separate pandemic risk insurance act, which you're going to need in order to offer business interruption in the future to non-essential businesses, you make that more affordable by including with terrorism. Now, every business in America will buy terrorism coverage in order to get pandemic coverage. And I would argue that if you're somebody who's buying TRIA now, you could get the revised new and improved TRIA plus pandemics for this less than what you're paying now because every business from sea to shining sea will be kicking in for terrorism to get pandemic coverage if you handle the risk in that kind of a way. You start to get away from that siloed thinking. And, you know, so this is all stuff that is the future. It's been risk management. It's been, this has been going on in the Fortune 500 since yeah. probably the 90s. It's just, it's just what we need to do is we need to take the kind of things that I was doing with Jeff Hoke in 1999 and we need to make that available to the businesses on Main Street now. So what is TRIA? TRIA is the Terrorism Risk Insurance Act. So okay. after 9-11, and one of the things I like to tell my students, and this is the case, you know, Wall Street likes to act like they move the pieces on the chessboard. The insurance industry decides that the chessboard is even going to be open today. So I was actually, true fact, I was buying $200 million with aviation insurance on 9-11. We had a September 15th renewal date. I had the quote on my desk at 8 a.m. for $65,000. I got a call at 11 a.m. That quote's rescinded. We're going to reissue it later today if there is a later today. And by the way, Zach, if your planes are in the air, all aviation insurance is canceled, effective at the end of this sentence or whenever they land, whichever soon as Dubai flight. Oh, jeez. All construction, all air traffic stopped on 9-11, not because of George W. Bush, not because of Osama bin Laden, may he rot in hell, um, but because of the insurance industry saying there will be no insurance today. And so they shut it all down. And, and the only way to get it back turned on again was the Terrorism Risk Insurance Act. Because what the insurance industry said at the time was, yeah, we agreed to cover terrorism, but we never thought it would be like this. And how can we possibly put up limits for a risk where everybody's having a loss at the same time? 
There's no scenario where your and I's house could be on fire tonight for the same reason, short of the apocalypse. But we both could be stuck for a pandemic. I was curious from the standpoint of as you are examining the risk associated with that. So, number one, I didn't realize that insurance companies could just say, you know, we're done as, a, as soon as the plane lands or crashes, we're done. It, it, certain lines of coverage. So for, for aviation, and that's actually that's one of the few policies that includes war or hijacking coverage, but that's one of the provisions under war or hijacking coverage in aviation is that if there is an active war or hijacking, they would actually cover any losses that happened while that plane was still in the air, but they want that plane on the ground as soon as possible because sure. they're in an active war situation. So yeah, it's, it's one of those wrinkles. So I'm a small business owner, and I, I'm just now getting versed in insurance. I mean, how? where do I look? I mean, I, I may have a policy, and I, I have no idea if I have in, uh, business interruption insurance. Yeah, you know, I would recommend you work with a great independent insurance. You know, somebody like a Gregor Nippel or an MJ Insurance or Shepherd Insurance, or you, you have an agency, your own agency. I mean, you know, again, there are, there are a number of different folks out there in the insurance that can help you. And it depends on what your needs are. Right. If you're a certain type of uh, risk, for example, uh, Gregor Nappel does a lot of uh, higher education universities. And so, you know, there are insurance brokers that can help. At the same time, the, the fine folks at MJ Insurance do most of the coal mines in America. And so they're, they're absolutely experts at coal mines. And so if you were someone that was a small business owner that had, you know, coal exposure, you know, you'd be talking MJ Insurance or trucking and logistics. That's something MJ is very good at. Um, you know, again, going back to Gregory Nappel, they've done a lot of work with the city and the capital improvement board. And so, when you go to an independent agent or broker, you know, they're not necessarily going to have someone someone that has my background. I mean, they more and more of them are hiring from Butler and other universities. So you're, what you're seeing is the industry gradually shift, yeah. right? And, and I don't want to make it sound like if you don't have my background, you're not a great professional. That's not true at all. I've met some of the greatest insurance professionals out there have philosophy degrees and music degrees or engineers, sure. you know, other experiences. But, but what you're finding is, is, you know, when you can only replace every baby boomer with half a Gen Xer. And demographically speaking, there's just not enough millennials to fill all those roles. And then you can't even get people that have degrees in what you do. That's created a huge demand for those, you know, 5,000 or so insurance graduates every year. And so that's what we're seeing is we're seeing a lot of, you know, the big firms like Marsh and Aon and, and Willis. Willis is really part of Aon now. They've been doing this for a lot of years. They've been going after this degree risk management talent because they've typically consulted more with the larger Fortune 500, Fortune 1000s that need more off-the-shelf solutions than what a, an everyday agent can, is going to be able to get for you. But if you're an everyday mate who's your small business, the kind of place where I'm taking my family to or, you know, you're doing work at my house, you're going to be great with an independent insurance agent. And what you're going to want to do is have them sit down with you every year and do what's called a gap report. We used to do this with, with Tim and Richard Smucker and the leadership team at Smucker. We would sit down and we would say, look, here's all the insurance you have. Here's all the deductibles you have. Here's all the limits you have. And here's why you told me you wanted them. And here's why I recommended what I recommended. And let's just all agree, is this still what we want to do this year or not? Because it's a different year this year than it was last year. Maybe there's a recall to competitor. Maybe there's a major pandemic going on. So, you know, the risks of that company are going to, or any company are going to vary based on what's going on at the moment. So it's important that, you know, what might be the right insurance program for the size of your company today it could be different if your company's bigger or smaller. It could be different if it's a different time of the year. It could be different if, Something's going on in the in, in the sure. world like this. And so if you look at it every year, then you at least know like, okay, I've signed off on any gaps. And that's the big one is to have your agent or broker sit down with you and, and your leadership team if you're not the, the owner and to say, look, pandemic insurance exists. Well, it used to. It maybe won't after this um, unless there's a backstop. But I was looking at it back in 2010. Yeah. 
I mean, you have to ask yourself if you're if you're a company that didn't just found out that there was pandemic insurance, where was your broker for last ten years? And part of that may not be the broker's fault. I mean, you have to look at the license exams. Do we even train agents on pandemic insurance and these exclusions? I mean, the insurance industry, do they even spend any money on advertising to explain that their exclusions and policies? When you start to look at all these uninsured business interruption claims, number one, a lot of these policies could actually cover this loss because they're not well written or they're old or antiquated. Um, but the other side of this is that doctrine of reasonable expectations, right? The insurance industry snuck in all these endorsements, and I say snuck in intentionally, by the way, after MERS and SARS, and then they spent exactly no effort or money to make sure the state licensing exams were updated. They spent exactly not one thin dime on advertising. It's all flow to an ice shows and nonsense. But when you watch a financial services commercial, they say investments may include risk of loss. When's the last time you ever heard an insurance commercial that said, hey, policies may include, include exclusions, check your policy. The fact they never yeah. did that yeah. means that they can't sit here and say, well, gee, small business, you should have known. Yeah. They didn't do anything. No, you're right. All right. So the, so the takeaway is there. Revisit your, your policies in a hurry, right? Yeah. Well, insurance is the only product you could buy and have a bad product and you never know. Yeah. Right? If, you drive a, if you drive a lemon off the lot, you're going to be mad five minutes after you get on the road. If you bought a terrible insurance product, unless you've never had a terrible tragedy, you would never know. And if you're the one who died in that tragedy, you still never know. Yeah. And, yeah. and so it's the only product <laughs> where – you're buying it basically on a complete lack of faith. And if you don't spend any time learning the contract or sitting with someone like me who knows the contract, you can then you know convert it into lay speak. I understand not everybody wants to read policies to the level I do, but that doesn't mean you can't sit with an agent for sure. 15 or 20 minutes and get the gist of it. Well, and, and, and we, and it's funny. So, so we carry errors and omissions insurance and you know, our deductible went from 10 grand to 25 grand. And I've said, why did that happen? And I mean, there's, there's not, uh, that's just the way it is. And I'm sitting here going, how in the hell is that possible? I mean, seriously. How, and, and I never got much of a, much of an answer. It's full limit losses. Actually. It's, I mean, it's, it's a combination of things, right? Cause, cause the insurance market's all interconnected. So they don't make a lot of their money through, through underwriting. It's actually through investments, right? So they'll collect a dollar of premium and they'll pay out a dollar two in claims, but they'll get 15 cents in investments. Yeah. And so if the market's really bad, then you're going to see your rates go up. If, if there's been claims for errors and emissions across the industry that you're in, even if you're not the culprit, <laughs> right? Right. I mean, think about it. Like, like the Vegas shooting, I use this example. The Wynn Resort had hidden metal detectors. Did you even know hidden metal detectors existed? No. They do. If you walk in a Wynn Resort with a suitcase full of uh, guns, you're going to have a very uncomfortable conversation with law enforcement very quickly. That's not something that existed in the MGM grant. And so the question is, is, is what's the duty? And, and then what are the insurance implications going forward if you, you know, if you have that or you don't have that? Yeah. Well, like I said, it continues to amaze me. And, but, it, but it sounds like from communicating with you or visiting with you that, uh, you know, there are alternatives. Now, one of the things I did want to follow up with, with you is where do you find the specializations for, like you were saying, MJ does great work in coal mines. How do you... How do you find the guy that uh, does great in accounting firms, uh, healthcare? So I would think at that point you would want to reach out to some of the great trade associations. So okay. you know the the big eye independent insurance agents in Indiana, like Steve Duff, he's a great guy. You know you go to a big eye convention or event or a meeting and you run into the folks there and you say, hey, who, who's good at this or who's good at that? And you know, frankly, that's how great our insurance industry is. I bet if you called Colin McNabb at MJ and you asked him about something, you know, that a competitor was more specialist, said he might he would mention that. Sure. He'd be confident enough to talk about why he thinks that he has the value to, to match that. But he would he would tell you, you know, like, hey, you might want to look at those other guys, too. Because yeah. um, that's the kind of folks we are, right? We just want everybody to get what's best for them. 
And so I think part of it's asking and doing your due diligence. And the other thing to remember is most people aren't specialized enough to need an industry expert person, right? You only need, like, you need a cold person or a fraternity person or a explosives person or a wolfing person. I mean, those are, you know, pretty high risk industries. If you're just a regular, you know, manufacturing or, or, or contractor, you may not, you may not need someone with great industry specialization. Sure. So what are the policies that are needed by business owners and, and what are the most overlooked provisions that somebody needs to spend some time on? I would say, you know, when it comes down to what insurance you should have, there's what's required by law and what's required by contract. So most businesses are going to have auto because they're driving. They're going to have workers' comp and employees. Um, you're going to have general liability because you can't really sell anywhere without it. So, for example, Walmart's going to usually want to see a million of, of commercial general liability insurance and maybe a $5 million umbrella. So a lot of businesses, insurance programs end up being dictated by their contracts. In fact, I, I was in a story with the Indianapolis Business Journal where we looked at the insurance program for the capital improvement board. And we made some recommendations on how they might improve that because what they were doing is they were buying insurance based strictly on what was required in the contract. Contract says we need 5 million, we need 5 million. And the answer is no, you might need more depending on what your actual risks are, your financial position is. So that's a big part of it. It starts to get into, you know, crime and these other specialized coverages. Business interruption is the most important. Business owners will buy property insurance, and when, when you buy property insurance to cover your building and personal property, it's very important that you spend the money for that business interruption, that extra expense coverage form. Start to get under the hood of a property policy, you, you actually have to pick what you want the property policy to cover you against. So you could take kind of a basic perils approach. I just give me the big things, right? The lightning and the fire, the kind of the normal stuff that's going to go wrong. Um, you can soup that up a little bit and say, all right, throw in some collapse or some fungus, you know, some of these other kind of perils. And then you can get what's kind of the, you know, the Cadillac of, of property insurance. It's that all-risk policy. Yeah. And it covers mm-hmm. all risks except what's excluded. And, and that's really your broadest coverage form. And so then when you've got business interruption, now you're covered with business interruption against anything unless it's excluded. And then you want to start to add in things to your policy like civil authority or ingress, egress. So civil authority would be right now. You can't run your – if you're a non-essential business, you can't run your business sure. under dictate of civil authority. The, problem, the reason why that's not insured is because the root cause of the civil authority is a pandemic. If there was some sort of, like, say there was a major fire in Indianapolis and the air quality was bad and we all had to stay in because there was a, a you know, smog in the air from a, from a fire and you were shut down because of civil authority, you'd be paid. You'd be paid right now because, because you're shut down. The ultimate reason for the civil authority shutdown was a fire. And in this instance, it's a pandemic. And so it's important to have that business interruption. It's important to have that civil authority, that ingress, egress, meaning my plant's fine, but the bridge is washed out. I can't get there. And then the question becomes, and that's the big one, is what do we do with this pandemic exposure? Because to the extent there was insurance before, there really won't be a going forward. I mean, you can't, you can't insure something that could have every single policyholder having a claim at the same time. You know, if we knew this was a Spanish flu 100-year event, it'd be no big deal. You'd set aside the present value of all this nonsense over 100 years and you'd be fine. The issue is we could be shut down each winter for the next, you know, two years and, and then not again for 297 years and still be a one in a 100-year event. And so in order to be able to price a premium, you have to know the severity and the probability. We'll know the severity after this, right? We'll know how bad this was, the good, the bad, the social distancing, all that. We'll know what come out the wash. The problem is, is we'll never know the probability. Yeah. Will it happen? You know, again, if this, if we were to shift, Butler University is a very well-run university, and our actual losses from room and board are like six million bucks. 
Our, our potential losses, if one in 10 college students don't come back because of job loss, is maybe $40 million. Right? Our recovery under the CARE Act is $2.6 bucks. That's it. And so, and we're a well-run university. So think about every university in America right now is in that same position. If this coronavirus shutdown had happened a month earlier, we'd probably be bankrupt. If we get shut down again next year, we'll be bankrupt. Most businesses in America will be bankrupt if we shut down again next year. I mean, the one takeaway from this is we can never do this again, ever, ever do this again. We must build the resiliency to never shut down like this again. And part of that may be if you're a small business and you can't get pandemic insurance, maybe you need to seasonally build your inventory in the summer or cold and flu season. Sure. So yeah. kind of pop yeah. up and you can yeah. take a shutdown. Well, as you were talking about the university, I mean, what, what are like in the cases that, you know, it required a pivot, you know, I know that, that there's a lot of conversation going on about, you know, why do I need to come to Butler or Purdue or whatever? I can do this online. And why would I pay that kind of tuition if you're able to deliver the service to me, you know, effortlessly, I shouldn't say effortlessly, but right. in a, in a manner that I'm, I'm still getting the benefit. I would argue that you're right, but in part. And universities do have to pivot. And, and, and our former dean, uh, Steen Stanford, who's now going to be the president of Bradley University, and we wish him all the best in his next chapter. Um, and that's one of the reasons why he's moving on to be a president, because he is such a great leader. And one of the things that Dean Stanford would tell you is that universities for a thousand years were the creators and stewards of knowledge. And you paid the premium to get access to the castle and get that knowledge. Well, guess what? Knowledge is a dime a dozen now. And so we actually don't need as many research-grade universities cranking out new knowledge as we used to. Guess what we need? We need arbiters of knowledge. What is good knowledge versus bad knowledge, and how do you use the knowledge that you use? So, you know, you could, you could read about animal mortality insurance in a book, or you can come to Butler where we're actually underwriting dogs and building a risk pool. Sure. So, for example, we insure all of our student-run businesses for commercial general liability. All of our sophomores run businesses, and we provide them with CGL exposure. They got hit with the pandemic, and they were all shut down. They couldn't sell because they were stuck at home. I stood up our entire insurance company as students, and we stepped in and backstopped their sales force. We helped them convert to a completely online sales platform in the span of a week and took them from not being able to sell their inventory to selling it all out. And my students helped to save that program, and we didn't even pay a single claim. That's one thing I'm trying to get. You know, we, lead our, we live our values here at Butler. That's what I'm telling the insurance industry. Live your values. We're doing it. We, didn't have, we, we stood up for Americans that were hurting here. We helped them not have business disruption. We didn't have to pay a damn claim. And you're not going to get that in a book. Yeah. No, you're right. Yeah. That, so, I mean, so yeah. That so I mean, in the, in the future, right? There will be universities that don't that can't adapt to that, and they'll die. But there'll be but there'll be ones that will. And 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 what we'll find is is the more cases like Butler that you find, the more you'll, you'll see like all. Oh, yeah. And and I and I'm I'm guilty of the same thing where you know there are there are businesses that shouldn't survive the the pandemic and as and as terrible as it is and the effect of, of on the those particular families. At least you're you've stopped going into debt to keep it alive. You know what I mean? Yeah. So yeah. yeah. So yeah. So if if you're if you have to pivot, and I I mean I think you know you're seeing a lot of innovation coming out, and you know that's the blessing of this thing or the silver lining is that you know a lot of there's a lot of emerging technology ways models and things like that that are that are really good for the country. It's just unfortunately that there's going to be some collateral damage in order to get there. Well, and the problem with universities and I, and I'll, I'll probably get yelled at for saying this, but I have someone who, who <laughs> I won't, tell, I won't tell anybody that you're saying it. All right. Yeah. No, well, I, I, you know, clinical professor is a fancy way of saying I don't have a PhD. <laughs> so <laughs> so I can't get, I can't get tenure, but I actually don't, I don't believe personally in tenure. I believe a good job is its own tenure. And one of the things that 
you know, and, and there was probably a time and place, and maybe there still is. Maybe I don't understand all the nuances of tenure to be able to make this statement. But, but one of the things that prevents the university from pivoting is that, you know, there are programs now that maybe aren't as relevant as they used to be, but the professors have earned their tenure. They've earned it. And so they're here for life or till they retire. And so when you're in a position where, like, geez, we really, in normal circumstances, might cut this program if we were a business, we, our hands are kind of tied here. Yeah. And so, you know, part of that universities do themselves. The other part of that is, you know, do you want to throw out the baby with the bad water, or the bath water, the good parts of what a university sure. does just because they're hamstrung on that. Yeah, but the but again, I think it's forcing everyone to look relook at at their business models and make some. There's going to be a lot of really. I'm so puzzled by this. Actually, I heard a CEO of a big insurance company in one of those places that too much marble and too much mahogany for their own good, and he was <laughs> he was like, oh, you know, I was really against uh, teleworking, and I guess I was wrong because we're running and everybody's doing it. And I just, you know, you talk to people about the future of business travel. I mean, I don't think that they, I think that a lot of things are going to be a lot different. Celebrity culture, just a lot of things are going to be different from this experience. I mean, some of it good. Maybe you don't see anybody die, right? We got to find our lemonade in this. Yeah, uh, but I think a lot of things are really going to be rethought and changed. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I mean, we're we're a we're a belly to belly firm, and I I drag you know a bunch of fifty and sixty year olds into the virtual selling world. You know where we're doing Zoom calls and and we're we're not missing a beat. I mean we we've got a we've got some lending challenges that we're going to have to to attack here soon, but right. the, but generally speaking, I mean we're still making our pitches, we're still doing our thing. But but it forced us, you know, it forced us to do that, and that that's a good thing for from where I'm sitting. Yeah. All right. So you mentioned uh, one of my questions was how often you should be auditing your policy. You, I think you said every year you should do a gap analysis, right? Yeah, yeah, that's a good way to do it. All right. So now, now some a loaded question. So you have your crystal ball out. So what does yeah. this what does this thing look like year year one year two out of this? Well, I think it depends on what the Congress and the insurance industry does. One of the reasons why I really want the insurance industry to look at finding, we have to find a way, it's like back to the future too, right? If you could turn on pandemic insurance in the past, <laughs> this timeline never has to happen, right? right? And, 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 and the insurance industry's reward for doing that, by the way, is there's going to be so much litigation that comes out of society. You're already seeing it, but you're going to see massive coverage litigation about, you know, the BI exclusions under ISO virus exclusion are pretty sound. I think it's silent on physical damage. I once had $15 million worth of inventory settled out total loss because the adjuster and I agreed that dirty was damaged under the Department of Health report. And so we started to talk about, you know, Indianapolis Repertory Theater was shut down because it was dirty and had to be sanitized for coronavirus. Is that a property damage claim? I would argue it could be. And, and then you start to look at, you know, some of these smaller insurers that haven't adopted the ISO endorsement. I'm here to tell you, anybody who has a business disruption policy that does not have the ISO virus or bacteria exclusion definitely has coverage. And I'll tell you how you know why. Because they created the endorsement. If they thought the policy was sitting up great before and the exclusions were so great before, they wouldn't have gone in and created an ISO virus and bacterium exclusion. So if your policy doesn't have that, you got them, you freaking got them dead to rights as far as I'm concerned. And and so there's a lot of insurers, frankly small ones, that haven't done that. So what you're seeing is it's, it's fun to watch. It's not fun, but it's interesting to watch, I should say. The trial lawyers are going to pick off the small insurance companies first to establish precedence. So what they're going to do is they're going to find all the sleepy little insurance companies and mutuals out in Timbuktu that never updated their policy forms and didn't have the right exclusions on there. And they're going to get it all invalidated in court. And then they're going to keep moving their up themselves up the chain until they either one, get the industry right where they want them or two, actually get the exclusions and things thrown out of court. 
and then they'll have those doctrine of reasonable expectations and issue do enough to educate people about exclusions. And then there's going to be, you know, it's uh, litigation with agents and brokers. You know, again, if you're an admitted agent, I don't think you have any exposure. The licensing system, I don't think did enough to train you to be able to, you know, advise your clients properly the way I was getting advised in 2010. But if you're an excess and surplus lines agent, if you're someone who deals with specialty risks and you're a specialty broker with more training and you're a company like, you know, major sports entertainment company that should know about these things and you weren't advised, there could be E&O claims, there could be D&O claims. I mean, that's the thing about risk management. You run into the Fortune 500. People don't talk like me. Some do, but not a lot. I mean, not as many as they should because the market for insurance is solved throughout every four years. If the fates are kind to you and you don't have any claims and you sound twice as insurancey as your boss and your agent sounds twice as insurancey as you, you think it's all working until one day you wake up and there's a pandemic and you go, oh, wow, that business across the street knew how much they were going to lose if their suppliers went down and we never did anything like that. And now we're, we're stuck over a barrel. Yeah. And so all that litigation will just be ruinous to the economy yeah. and to the legal system. I just can't believe that the insurance industry would want to undertake all that litigation. So I think that they would be really smart. And it'd be really funny, frankly, to have all the toilet lawyers have it taken away from them, right? They're already putting up the bus advertisement. <laughs> right. I saw that. I- if you find a way to do an end run around them and say, hey, we're actually going to cover this, you know, maybe not as much as people would like, but enough that, we, that there's no litigation that can happen. And so, you know, the problem is I think that's the, the future that's going to happen. I just don't think that Congress is nimble enough. I mean, when you look at risk velocity, right, the Congress is the tortoise, the coronavirus is the hare. And economic business interruption risk is the Millennium Falcon. And they just can't bail out people fast enough. I mean, think about it. Butler's getting $2.6 million under the CARES Act. We have maybe $40 million of losses. What if all this publicity, we end up making money? We're not giving that $2.6 million back. And so all this money has been deployed inefficiently. And so I just don't see Congress changing decades of bailout precedents and doing something completely new and novel recommended by an insurance professor in Indiana. I wish they would, but it doesn't seem like that's going to be the case. I mean, I'm trying as hard as I can through RIMS and industry groups and risk managers and chiefs of staffs and trying to get to these Congress folks directly. And so we'll see what happens. Yeah. Um, you know, the longer they wait, the more right I get. I guess. <laughs> right. Well, I'll tell you the, the funny Mark, I think it was Mark Cuban that came out and I, th- I thought it was a really good idea. You know, that you just, you just backstop the overdraft. You, you write your checks and, and that will be, that will be where the stimulus came from. So now, now you were a hundred percent certain where the money was going going to and yeah. that was a that was a really interesting and novel way to approach that's the problem is everybody's uncertain right now i mean risk is like air in a balloon right the losses are coronavirus are the losses it's not like if we stick someone with the bill or someone else with the bill it's going to change the bill the bill's the bill and so the question is how do you push the air in the balloon so you don't pop it and right now all the air is weighing down every business in american in the country and people act irrationally when they're uncertain. They, they assume the bad's three times as, as bad and they forget the good part. They forget the part of America where all the Clark Kents whip open their shirts and their S's are out and they go and do the Superman stuff or the Superwoman stuff, whatever it is. That happens every time. That's, that's what you love about America and everybody forgets about it until it happens. And so right now everybody's acting irrational. Butler's cutting things that maybe they can't uncut because of all this uncertainty. So if you put that certainty back in the system, people just, ah, oh, wow. I mean, you can even, pay, I even liken it this way. You could pay for it by by extending Social Security. Could you find a single American if you were a year from retirement and said, hey, you know what? If you're a year from retirement, you've got one more month. And two years from retirement, you're two months, and we'll go back 12 years to where everybody's working an extra year, and we'll just, it's a vacation now, America. 
You know, you, you, you always see here for 2020. You can work it when you're old and, you know, nuts to your future self. We all get a year of vacation when we're young enough to enjoy it. The whole mood of the country would change. You would go from being grounded and under a quarantine to screwing around and getting a free year early retirement and then basically just having to make it up more 66. I mean, who cares about 66 all the Yeah. It's a solution that would work, but they just don't think that way. Yeah. So um, switching gears to the sale of insurance agencies. And I, I, I meant to brief you a little bit about it, but I mean, we're seeing a, a lot of baby boomer business owner insurance agents that have to do something with their agencies. What's the, what's the market now for, for, for independent agencies to, to sell good or bad? It depends. It depends like anything. Talent is usually the missing catalyst, right? Usually an agent is forced to sell to somebody they don't want to sell to. You know, at least it's been my experience. My experience is most independent agents have spent a lifetime building something, and it's it's really special to have that book of business, and they really want to, you know, maybe pass it down to a family member or to someone, a loyal lieutenant, whatever the case may be, and they just have a, they have a hard time finding the right person, yeah. right? It's part part of it. I think is a generational mentality. I, you know, with all respect to baby, there's a little bit of control freak issues sure. a little bit sometimes. I think. Um, and, 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 and if I don't have all the control and maybe not as valuable, so there's a little bit of that, but there's also, you know, how am I going to find somebody that could possibly do everything I do? And, and, and that's really hard, right. To, to find that person. And so I think for, if you're an agent or broker, that's not being forced to sell and you have time, now's the time to really invest in succession planning and perpetuation planning and to do things like. You know, if you've got a if you've got a, a family member that maybe wants to take sure. over the agency, send them to an undergraduate program like Butler Indiana State, or you know, the online masters of risk at at, at Butler that we're doing now, and, and and start to prepare someone to take over that that next generation. Because what will happen if you don't is you'll get forced to. You know, I own Brown and Brown stock. I make a fortune on it because that's one of your options. You sell the Brown and Brown, or there's a um, well, I can't I can't remember the name of it, but there's a group out of Columbus, Ohio, that you know agents basically form together. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. my my last question is if you had one piece of advice that you could give that would have the biggest impact on a small business what would it be oh the biggest advice that i would have to give on a small business geez i'm trying to think with that way honestly situation specific i think it's to help lobby for the pandemic risk insurance act Okay. Um, you know, now whether, whether Congress does this going backwards for coronavirus, that's a whole other thing, right? That's something very new and novel and you can maybe even forgive the Congress for not being able to consider it. But when you think about the world going forward, how could you run a cruise line without pandemic business interruption insurance? Sure. How could you sure. finance one of those big boats if you don't know if you're going to be cruising from one year to the next? Or how could you run Gen Con or Black Expo or any of these great events you have in Indianapolis? You know, a lot of professional associations live and die by their annual meetings. And so yeah. there may be associations that don't come out of this, and then that's negative to Indianapolis and our economy. I mean, we lost $25 million, I think it was, from the NCAA. And so how do we have as vibrant a community in Indianapolis as we used to have if we have no certainty around being able to have non-essential business? So how do I do that? Where, where do I go to, to do this? I think, you write your, I think you write your congressman and your senators, and you say, hey, there's this kind of nutty insurance professor at Butler University who doesn't have any financial interest, and him and his students help come up with an idea that we think might help my business to have business certainty in the future around pandemics and business disruption insurance. And, you know, would you please stop talking to the lobbyists in the special interest and just talk to this, you know, just a regular single solitary who's trying to do the right thing. And, and what's great is this idea was actually, it came from students doing a case conference. And what's more true than that? 
Really? So, really? So that the the framework? Yeah, in 2017, I had four students: uh, Nick Fox, Jessica Parada, Aaron Bundy, and Matt Palzak, and they're all in very successful roles right now. In fact, Nick's at Marsh. He helped get John Doyle at Marsh to support the Pandemic Risk Insurance Act. Nice. They did a case competition in 2017 of PayPal, and they envisioned a world where we were on a black swan shutdown for months on the end because of cyber. Which actually, if you think about it, could happen. Sure. In fact, it would probably be worse, right? Imagine how much society would be falling apart right now if we didn't have our tiger kids um, and Joe Exotic. And so, you know, they envisioned like, okay, the only way a PayPal could live in a world where that could happen is if there was. So I got a call from Indianapolis Business Journal when when the NCA was going to cancel. I found out about an hour before everybody else, and they asked me what the ramifications of that were going to be. And, you know, you'll find out whether the NCA was insured or not. But let's put it this way the risk manager is a former mentee of mine, so you can do the math on that one. But when you start to look at all the ancillary impacts to other businesses, I mean, this is going to be a nightmare. And, and, and then you get the next day, you get the memo from Dango. Because what, what do you think happens when we're going to lose maybe $40 million? We cut construction, hiring, spending. Sure. And then those businesses cut construction, hiring, and spending. And so I thought, like, wow, we got to have a government backstop. And then I and then I came up with this. I thought I came up with the Pandemic Risk Insurance Act. And then when I had a few minutes to think about it, I thought, well, damn, these students, this is their idea. And so let's bring them into the mix. And so now you're starting to see in some of the media and, and papers that's come out that, you know, I'm just turning in their homework. That's all. <laughs> right. What, what um, so is, is it in the form of a white paper? Yeah. So I, on, uh, I believe it was on uh, March 18th. It's in Risk and Insurance Magazine. I, I basically published the memo. I sent a memo to Governor Eric Holcomb, I think, on somewhere around the 12th of the month. Again, every day in March feels like two years. But basically, at the beginning of the month, I sent a memo to Eric Holcomb, and I said, look, if this is business interruption is going to ripple through this economy like contagion, and we're basically going to end up with 22 million jobs, basically. I didn't call the number, but basically everything I said was going to happen has happened. And what I was saying to him is if you, if you turn on pandemic risk insurance now, none of this has to happen. And by the way, if you don't want to do it now, you're going to at least have to do it for the next pandemic. Because again, if this happens again, Butler's bankrupt. Yeah. Right. How many businesses do you know that can afford to be shut down next year for two or three months? I mean, you start talking about some of these health insurance saying we'll be shut down for 18 months. Sure. We'll be eating dogs before we're shut down for 18 months. I'll tell you that right now yeah. because they don't understand. Like when you're not running fuel plants, fuel plants create catalysts and byproducts to go into other critical products that aren't being made because there's no catalysts or byproducts. The food system is destabilized. Yeah. And so there's all these unintended consequences just rippling and no one's going to know until it's too late. Um, is that open to the public or, or do yeah, you? Yeah, no. And so you go to Risk and Insurance Magazine and you can search for my name or the Pandemic Risk Insurance Act. And not only will that include, in fact, when we're done here, I'll send you a link to those, to those pieces. Um, but not only does it include my original call to arms and kind of what I thought was going to happen. And you can basically read and see, okay, how right was this guy? And how right is he about what he says is going to happen next? And then you can find a copy of the sure. draft legislation for well, I'll put I'll put a uh, link to it in in the show notes. So, yeah, that. so what's the the best way to to connect with you? I'm assuming LinkedIn. Yeah, you can connect with me on LinkedIn. I'm pretty active on LinkedIn. You can also reach out to Butler University. So Tim Brock is our media uh, uh, liaison, and, and again, I'm someone that's on the Butler website. You can find me in the directory. They don't let me out much. <laughs> well, I'll tell you one one of the things uh, you do not disappoint on LinkedIn. I, I have in, enjoyed following following you and the and, and the <laughs> comments and and uh, the diplomacy and and at times the uh, the nuclear uh, options that you've given. Um, I really, you know, <laughs> I, I you actually one of the questions that you asked me that I really liked that you didn't ask me yet was well, how did I kind of saw my role. Yeah. And, and, and as a professor, I feel a certain level of responsibility, I guess. There are certain 
privileges that are afforded to me as a professor, both in my schedule and my time, but also in my academic freedom and the way that I'm allowed to think and approach issues. And so I, you know, when, when something like this happens, or even just in general, I think about my grandpa. Right? My grandpa had a, a better golf handicap than Tiger Woods, and he won state golf in 1941, and you know where this is going. Instead of college, he went to, the, he went to World War II, and then he worked in the Wayne Works bus factory for 44 years, right? So he serves. He knows how to serve, and we know how to serve in my family. And I, I think about, you know, as, as someone who works with college students all day long, I don't want to be, you know, we've lost too many idols, right? We lost Bill Cosby. We lost some of our great, you know, idols. We lost Kobe Bryant this year in an accident. I mean, it seems like every hero we have, we lose for one reason or another. Either something happens to them or they do something. And I just never want to be that guy. I want to be someone who tries to be better today than I was, you know, yesterday and better tomorrow than I was today and just try and live my values and try and give people, you know, I, I, there was a lot of financial disruption in my family early on and some things that happened. My parents got divorced. I had an accident where I almost died. And so I, I never really expected to have this kind of career or life. And, and I ended up doing a lot of really cool things in my career. And I, you know, I've, I've eaten dinner with owners of MLB teams. I've broken bread at J.M. Smucker's table. I worked on a Hurricane Katrina claim. I helped bring domestic partner benefits to a company you know, in 2005 in rural Indiana. And so I've had just so many amazing adventures. And I've been able to have a, a, the real American dream life. And, and, and I feel a sense of obligation now that I have a certain level of comfort and standing to be able to share with everyone else, right? I'm a very much the train comes, everybody rides kind of guy. I try to be a force for good on LinkedIn. If you ever see me on there and I say something that actually gives me a trouble, just know I'm trying to do the right thing. I don't want to get canceled. No, not, not at all. I don't want to offend anybody, but I do, I do feel an obligation. I mean, like, it's very challenging right now to be someone who's saying, like, look, we appreciate social distancing. We love social distancing. It was probably the right thing to do. It may still be the right thing to do. But there will be a point in time where we will cause more death from it than we are getting back. And that's a very not comfortable position to take. It's not popular. But I feel like if I don't speak out, I don't know if I'll be able to sleep at night if the things that I think will happen will happen. And I would love to be wrong, but I feel an obligation to, to make sure that I'm doing my part to at least get that out there. Well, and, and one of the one of the great things about you is is just that, that, that it's thoughtful conversation you i mean you may disagree but your your rebuttals or your position is is well thought out it's not it's not like you know screw you just because you're a democrat kind of thing you know i actually i I have a certain certain codes i live by and one of the things i think is very important i think we've lost in this society i I believe it's in my heart of hearts if i disagree with someone unless they're a racist or a nazi those people don't get a pass but anybody else if i disagree with you i will give you the courtesy and respect of seeing where you're coming because everybody approaches life from a different set of perspectives and a different set of values. And I just think that having rigid political beliefs or binary thinking is just not the way to do it. I mean, what I believe about the world is completely different during, before, and after pandemic. Yeah. But, you know, at the same time, it's, um, you know, it is, I think we're in a, in a world where individual folks like you can can be heroes you know someone that that speaks for the guy that doesn't have the voice and you can push a white paper out and all of a sudden it finds its way to washington because there was somebody that knew somebody that said you know what you need to take a peek at this that's well, that's why you can that's why you can never bet against america actually right. i mean you, that's exactly you know, right. I, that's where i was at. I, don't, I don't like to be called a hero because there's lots of people just like no, me. No, I mean, everything i did was you know, someone else supported, but you're exactly right. I mean, that always happens. There's always individual Americans who will not have it and they're not going to take it lying down. Sure. They rip their shirt open and become <laughs> Superman. Right. And, and that's the, my son's name Clark, just for that reason, by the way. Nice. Well, I mean, and that's, a, that's the, the, the beauty of, of what's going on is because I think a, a lot of, you know, it, although there's pain and there's uncertainty and, and 
all that accompanies this coronavirus, there are some really good things that are coming out of it. And that that's the blessing. I've seen most people come together, most people in the real world. I would love to see, you know, I, I would love to see actually, you know, one of the things I heard is like Trump and Pelosi haven't been in the same room together for months. I got to think, you know, if I've been stuck at home for all these months, they should have to have dinner together on <laughs> national TV right. and like, just be friends, right? doesn't matter who tweeted what to who or who impeached who anymore. Just let it go, right? right. Let the pandemic be the world's great reset button. And let's not complain about anything that happened in the past. Let's just be solution-oriented for the go-forward. You know? Amen to that. Well, look, I've, I've taken way too much time, um, far more than, and you've been so generous with it. So, you know what? Thank you. Thank you so much for, for taking the time and being a defender of business value. I, I, really no, I appreciate, appreciate it. it. I mean, business is the economy. Business is the security that my family and I enjoy. And in this time of challenge, if there's anything I can do, I'm here. In fact, I'll be here all summer. So if there's anybody who needs anything, just reach out and let us know. All right. Well, you stay well. I appreciate your time. Very good. Thank you, sir. This was another episode of the Defenders of Business Value Podcast. For more episodes packed with strategies to increase the value of your business, visit DefendersOfBusinessValue.com for show notes, transcripts, and free tools to start you on your journey. Subscribe now so you don't miss any future episodes.